The reading is from Exodus chapter 33, verses 7 to 23. Verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance, while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, Lead this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else would distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. Well, thank you very much. It's a, a real pleasure to be here back at Eden again. Um, thank you very much for your invitation. Um, and it's lovely to be here, particularly in these momentous final weeks. Um, and uh, that roots a jazz thing make a beeline. We had those guys at our church uh, in Maidenhead, and uh, it, was, it was fantastic. I think they've been here before, but if you haven't heard them, definitely um, make a beeline for it. I'm going to pray as we begin, and this is a prayer that, well, I mentioned John Stott earlier. I'll use the prayer that he would often begin his sermons with. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule. May your spirit be our teacher. May your greater glory our supreme concern. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Now, I'm almost certain I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, but I'm pretty sure that you have not heard of the Gugu Yimithia people. Um, they live around the town of Hopevale in northern Queensland, in Australia. Um, but they're a very remarkable people. They have a unique language, 
and they, uh, there are very few left who actually speak it. I think, I think it's down to only about 500 people who speak this language. Um, but to understand why they're so remarkable and why this language is so remarkable, I need to uh, you know, do a little bit of uh, explanation about how language works or one aspect of it. So, for example, if you want to describe the location of any object, we essentially have two options, and this counts for pretty much all languages that are spoken. And um, the, the, the options are to use egocentric or geographic locators. In other words, to describe something in relation to ourselves or in relation to something external. It might be a building or something, and ultimately on Earth we would use the compass. Um, Now, of course, in this context, egocentric has no sort of moral or negative connotations. It's just simply a fact. It's a description of things in relation to me. Now, for a long time, it was assumed that human language has always depended on egocentric locators. After all, it's natural to describe the world in relation to ourselves. And in fact, the Bible does that all the time, doesn't it? Um, So when we talk about sunrise and sunset, we're describing the movements of the sun egocentrically or geocentrically. In other words, as if the earth was at the center We're describing it as we see it, and that's absolutely fine. We know what's going on. I I guess most people now know that the earth moves around the sun, uh, but still we talk about sunrise. No great shakes. Uh, Everybody talks like that, except not everybody. Uh, The Gugu Yimathir transpires in their language have no vocabulary whatsoever for egocentric locators. They have no words in their language at all to describe things in relation to themselves. They only use geographic locators. So instead of, let's say, instead of saying ginger is standing in front of the tree, they will say ginger is standing a little to the tree's north. Uh, When Fred asks for directions, saying turn left to Fred will not translate. You have to say take the southeastern exit. Now, it's so fundamental to the language that you cannot even uh, tell Mary to, to read forward in a book. Instead, you have to say go further east in that book, if she is facing north, that is. Now... The thing is, that's only when you're speaking Google Yumithir. All of them speak English. So they're perfectly capable of understanding and using egocentric locators. It's in no sense a reflection on their perception of the world. They will say all the time, oh, that's in front of me, or read forward, or, or whatever it is. No, it's just, you know, they get the concepts. It's just that in their heart language, they don't need them. Why? Well, it's because, and this is the weirdest thing, they are so wired to the compass that even in unfamiliar places, they instinctively know the cardinal directions. They they don't need to calculate it from the sun or from landmarks. They just know it. And experiments have been done, taking them into a windowless room, and I guess, you know, turning them around several times, and they say, right... (laughs) They can do it. 
Even they use uh, compass uh, markings to describe, say, a a place they visited years before, perhaps in childhood, or when describing a dream. So I guess it's a bit like a musician with perfect pitch who knows, you know, if a piano is not tuned to A, standard A, at 440 hertz. They just know. Uh, So unless you share this perfect sense of direction, this language is going to be a struggle. Because when you're learning it, you're going to need both a dictionary and a compass. Here's the thing. Human language can only derive from the limits of human experience or human imaginations. Now, that does not mean that human experience, uh, that it's limited to my experience or my imaginations. No, because I've got those of countless others who've gone before me and who live at the same time as me to draw on. Um, So, you know, there's an almost infinite variety. And sometimes other people's experiences are mind-boggling and go way beyond our own. So, for example, I never know where north is. Even in America, when I'm on a grid street pattern, I still get lost and confused. And they say, well, this is north. And for them, it's completely obvious. I haven't a clue. I I prefer my streets with kinks and bends in them. It makes life a lot easier. Anyway... I mean, human beings are far more weird and wonderful than we ever realize. But language, nevertheless, is always limited. And I think as Christians, we need to grapple with this, because it's actually pretty fundamental. Because if you think about it, we believe, and we sang it earlier, in a gospel that is transcendent and eternal, the story of a divine creator and rescuer, a God who intervenes in the world, who interrupts and even invades the world. Our creator God got his feet muddy in the River Jordan. And whenever this happens, every single time, whenever there is an intersection between the transcendent and our world, sometimes described as the imminent, Whenever this happens, it's as if the riverbanks of human language are burst and overrun. Because you're having to use words derived from human experience to capture an entirely different plane of existence. We have words to point to the eternal, but we can't really imagine what that means, what it's like, what it feels like. So I want to just begin by just thinking about something uh, that the Bible points us to that that shows what a puzzle this is. And it's a fascinating example. It's one that actually has puzzled scholars for centuries, and I've called it the Moses Paradox. And Exodus 33 is our passage uh, to, to focus on this. And what we find is something really quite weird. I remember being really quite shocked the first time I, I noticed this, or it was, it was actually pointed out to me. But in chapter 33, um, it's, it's quite a climactic point in Moses' life. 
Uh, and it's been quite the ride, hasn't it? Um, you know, luxury as Egyptian royalty, then decades as a deputy sheep farmer, then months leading a rabble of fellow Israelites through threats from armies, deserts, even his own brother's failures. I mean, you know the story. If you don't, read Exodus. It's all been pretty fraught and, you know, roller coasterish. But at the heart of it all, a unique intimacy with God. That's what keeps the show on the road. It's the only thing, in fact. God was involved. And here's a glimpse in chapter 33 at the tent of meeting, verse, uh, verse 11. Ever since leaving Egypt, God's uh, pillar of cloud or fire has led them. And this came to the tent that Moses set up just outside the camp where Moses met Yahweh Uh, the Lord. So let me read from verse 10. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. That is, that's beautiful, isn't it? Um, I don't know about you, but I have a sneaking envy here, don't you? I mean, yeah, look, I realize it brought heavy, heavy burdens for Moses. And I know what is true of all believers, uh, that we will all enjoy such face-to-face intimacy in eternity. I know this is happening. And I know that even now, we have access in prayer to God, face-to-face, metaphorically. Yeah, I know all that. And yet, I still can't feeling a little envious. (laughs) There's something wonderful about this. Face-to-face. Now, uh, you don't need me to remind you, but um, there are many around, many indeed in this town, who insist that the Bible is full of contradictions. I don't have time for all of going into details on that, and there are plenty more qualified than me uh, sitting amongst us even tonight. But, But we should give the writers, I think, of the Bible far more credit than we usually allow, because sometimes it's actually deliberate. Uh, it's there to shake us up. And I think Exodus 33 is a case in point. It certainly makes us think. I suspect it's meant to perplex and mystify us. Because just look a bit further down. You see, Moses seems to want more. He, he's established how dependent he and Israel are on Yahweh. He asks in verse 18 to be shown God's glory. Now, knowing what we know is to come... I think I'm impressed by how, you know, friendly God is and, you know, sort of quite affable about it and says, you know, okay, right, well. Um, But it's not quite what we would expect. Verse 19, the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But you cannot see my face. For no one may see me and live. Well, hang on a sec. What have they been doing all this time? Uh, In verse 11, they were meeting face to face, as you and I might meet. And yet now, God's face is somehow lethally dangerous. 
So, so that's why in the next verses we, we have all this rigmarole of hiding in the rock. I mean, maybe they thought of the hymn, Clef for me to come. Maybe that's part of it as well. But, but anyway, he has to hide in the rock to protect him. So God protects Moses from himself. And he repeats in verse 23, my face must not be seen. Now, of course, a key factor is God's holiness and humanity's sin. Sin seems to make God and us somehow mutually exclusive. And yet, what's been going on in verse 11? If it was so dangerous, why why was Moses face to face? And that, that was all cool. More on that in a moment. But that doesn't get quite to the real issue. See, the idea is that one minute Moses does appear to have full access to God, the next moment he doesn't. And as you might expect, there are gallons of ink spilled over this, trying to figure it out. And any commentary on Exodus worth its salt is going to have to really unpack and deal with this. Uh, One obvious solution, maybe, and this does get offered, is, is that there seems to be a difference between meeting God face to face as opposed to God's face in his glory. And, you know, that, that is reasonable. That seems to be the thing that changes. And God's glory is not available to Moses. But there's no explanation of what that means and why it might be. So this is what Chris Wright says in his excellent commentary on Exodus. And I have to say that because he's my former boss. Um, this is what Chris says in his commentary on Exodus. Whichever way we rationalize the matter, we should understand that by putting these two face texts so closely together, the narrator is forcing us to wrestle with the difficulty of expressing exactly what the presence of God means. Do you see the point? This is the precise problem when the transcendent realm intersects with the imminent or our lived realm. Language, any language, struggles to be up to the task. In fact, I would say it's impossible. How can finite minds, I mean, I know there's some clever clever people in the room, but all our minds are finite, nevertheless, Sorry to break that, break that to you if that's news, but sooner rather than later getting to deal with that would be good. How can finite minds, which are the source of all human language, even begin to comprehend the nature of the infinite? We can't. We give them names like infinite or sort of mathematical sort of symbols that are sort of weird squiggles. How that's meant to help, I've no idea. Or, or eternity. But they're just, they're just pointers rather than descriptors. So another commentator, John Goldingay, puts it brilliantly in his commentary. I love this line. Speaking again about these two face texts of Exodus 33. He says this, This constitutes another example of Exodus thinking its way round a theological profundity by telling a story. Thinking its way around a theological profundity by telling a story. Isn't that great? 
Exodus doesn't avoid the problem. It doesn't gloss over it. And Moses did experience something profound and deeply real. He did have intimacy with God. It's simply that no words could do it justice, ever. It's something simply too big for words. So God, in his wisdom, tells stories. The Bible is a story. Now, of course, that entails words. Of course it does. You can't avoid words. But words as works of art. For stories are works of art, not scientific or systematic formulae. So here's the Moses paradox. It's a paradox that the Old Testament never flattens and never explains away. It's just stated, or rather, narrated. And in the Jewish scriptures, it's left hanging, unresolved, pending. There are clues here and there, pointers, but that's it. The amazing thing is, though, it does get picked up in the New Testament, in one of the most famous and glorious passages that that actually Julian opened the service with, if you were here at the start, the prologue to John's Gospel. Don Carson, formerly of this parish, uh, comments that John 1 is profoundly linked to Exodus 33. This is what he says, In Exodus... Moses hears the divine name spoken by God himself, and this is followed by God's word written on two stone tablets. Now John tells us God's word, his self-expression, has become flesh. This is the supreme revelation. So this is what I would call the Jesus paradox. Uh, I'll just pick out two verses. Verse 14 from John 1. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling, literally tented, if you like, put his tent out among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, does that sound a little bit familiar? John effectively is placing himself, as one of the apostles, in the same spot as Moses in Exodus 33. It's a, that's a pretty daring thing to do in itself, but in verse 14, God has made his dwelling among us in effect, Jesus is now himself the tent of meeting. Where do you go to meet God? In Jesus, here on earth, in Palestine 2,000 years ago. And John says, we have seen his glory. Yeah, that's right. The, the, The glory of the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When they met Jesus, John and all the others met him. They saw his glory, which is a huge idea. And John unpacks that in certain ways, in very surprising ways. We don't have time for that. But, but you get the amazing thing is that, that John and the apostles and all those who are around got to see what Moses was prevented from seeing. 
that somehow was too dangerous for Moses. How? Well, Jesus, who is God himself, has made him known. And then five crucial words. The word has become flesh. Now that in itself is a complicated phrase. It's stretching language to its absolute limit. I mean, what does it mean for Jesus, a human being who happens to be God as well, not a bit of this and a bit of that, but fully human, fully God, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Word? It's clearly a metaphor. We're not meant to think that he suddenly turned into some sort of weird bunch of letters and sounds. It communicates. It's a metaphor that communicates something about Jesus. And it communicates that Jesus himself is communication from God. Which itself is mind-blowing. God's supreme communication of himself is not found in creation. It's not found in his mighty deeds. It's not even found in the scriptures. Even though each of those things are profoundly and hugely necessary and important. Each of those things reveal deep truths about God. No, but his supreme revelation is a person. Jesus. And you can never reduce a person to a painting or a voice or a portrayal on a movie screen. Or just words, let alone a tweet. A person is never less than those things. And always more. Now, many of these things help and indeed are vital for pointing us to to and revealing something about that person. But people are always more than their descriptions, their photographs, their voices, their stage portrayals. Always. And if that's true of us as human beings, how much more is it true of the one who is the creator of everything? Which is why it's amazing that God uses words to communicate at all. Uses words about his word and words that become his word as well, because that's what the Bible is. So please, do not for a minute think I'm giving up on Scripture. By no means. But we just need to be real and get it in its right place. We don't have any revelation better than Scripture, but never imagine that God doesn't use other means to reveal himself or reality or the nature of being human. Don't imagine that we can avoid all kinds of different media and means to grapple with what is reality. So that's when heaven touches earth. What about the other way around? When we're trying to figure out, here we are, we're bound by living on earth. We, you know, here we are, we're limited by experiences and we can borrow and we can learn from and appropriate other people's experiences. That is all good. That is, that is community life. That is historical community life. That is being part of great traditions. We have a belonging in our history as well as our present. 
what does it mean to try and sort of figure out this reality, including the reality of a God who is at work and comes from outside? I think as Christians, we often have a tendency to confuse two things when we're defending truth and the truth. I think we fear it is impossible to keep something as a priority while holding other things as good um, and important. So we start assuming that the thing that we want as a priority is exclusive and that anything else we touch or think about or get involved in is inevitably going to eclipse or downplay the priority. But that's not how God works. We can have uh, things that are priorities. We can say the Bible is God's supreme revelation of himself to us because it testifies about Christ. But there are many other ways, and actually I'm pretty sure that each of us have experiences from our lives where God has used the most bizarre things to stop us in our tracks, to get us on our knees, to make us wonder make us understand other people, even make us understand what it means to follow Christ. And actually, even in our interactions as human beings, we communicate in all kinds of ways through our facial expressions, through our body posture, our choice of words, the volume, the tone, the silence, the speed, and so on and so forth. Each of those contributes and says something. And we can sometimes learn more about another person through their emotions than the words they speak. And actually the emotions may actually sort of blitz out any other thing being said. I'm fine. See what I mean? No, 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 I am. It's okay. okay. (laughs) Human reason is of great importance but it's not of exclusive importance. There are some things about life that they may not be rational, but they're not irrational either. They are just part of what it is to be human. We are word people, but we're not rationalists. We are like our creator who made us in his image. We are complex, which means sometimes truth cannot be oversimplified. Sometimes the reality is sometimes something that is both and rather than either or. And the Lord Jesus himself is a case in point. He's not either human or divine. He is both human and divine. Get your head around that. We are word people, but we're not reductionists. We don't reduce everything to its sort of bare bones, basic chemical formula. That has its place. Especially perhaps, I don't know, this will reveal I'm no scientist, but that has its place perhaps if you're trying to develop a new vaccine. But don't think that will necessarily help you understand human relationships or prayer or trying to be godly in a hostile world. It's just different. And this actually, you see, 
is one of the things that the arts are very good at. You see, what we're dealing with is paradox, things that are both true, even though perhaps at face value they seem logically inconsistent and contradictory. I don't fully understand what's going on in Exodus 33. But one of the reasons I love that passage is because I don't understand it. But it's telling me about God getting involved in the world. And that is always going to absolutely break language apart. But we still use language to try and approach it. God does. God calls for us to have that book. And this is why I strongly believe that the arts are profoundly valued by God because the arts love a good paradox. They love making us think or sitting up and suddenly seeing something differently. And I don't just mean the wordy arts. I mean all of them. You see, I think that uh, God does give some people heightened senses. And some even have perhaps unique senses. So, I don't know whether anybody here has a sort of, you know, a natural inner compass. But uh, the, uh, I don't know whether there are any members of the Gugu Yumithia people group here. I'd love to meet you. It'd be fascinating. Uh, but God gives them the ability to know where north is always. Now, for whatever reason... Um, 99.9999% of the human race don't seem to have kept that ability up. I don't know why. I mean, you know, you wouldn't need a sat-nav, I suppose. So maybe Apple's done some kind of dodgy thing. Anyway, I don't know. It's probably in the water. No, don't, don't, don't go down there. Um, <clears throat> for some reason, God gives people special abilities in certain areas, things that I can't relate to. Perhaps we know this, you know, when, when one person loses a, a sense, or perhaps was born without one, we know, don't we, that, that they seem to sort of compensate by really developing another. So people who lose their sight, or never had sight, can be amazing at hearing, and hearing all kinds of things that actually normally you just aren't aware of. No, we are astonishing creatures. Now, people who can make a living as creative professionals are very often those who have two connected gifts. They have, yes, these heightened senses. Whether it's about the natural world or, or, or the environment or about people or, or, you know, all kinds of different things. They see, they feel, they hear, they sense more intensely than most of us. So that's a gift in itself. It also can be a deep burden. But nevertheless, that seems to be a human capacity, and we praise God for that. But at the same time, and this is often what marks them out, they can also communicate something of what they've sensed. And that is their true wonder and their true gift, the great generosity of creative professionals, because you see, it's what makes them so enriching, so enthralling, so challenging, so necessary. They can help us go beyond words. I mean, sometimes, you know, you meet people, let's say they're painters or musicians, they are incredibly inarticulate. 
You know, it's very odd, isn't it, how you know, in the media you'll, you'll get sort of some pop musician or whatever, and they become gurus mainly because they can sing well. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're really chatty. Well, sometimes actors, you know, comic actors, when you see them interviewed, they're really boring people. They're just amazing on stage. <laughs> um, but they use whichever art form or form of expression to really communicate stuff that they can't do in any other way. You know, why you ask an artist why do they do it is because they must. I mean, it's like asking somebody, why do you talk? I mean, some people you really want to ask that of, but... Um, why do you compose? Well, I can't not. They can help us go beyond words. They even help us grope beyond the world to something of the next. So um, time is pressing. I'm going to give you just a handful of examples of what sorts of things I'm getting at. We could go in a myriad directions. But I'm just going to, um, for the sake of the, um, the time now, just focus on um, the visual arts. Let me give uh, the first example. is Lucian Freud who died about 10 years ago or so, 12 years. One of the most extraordinary portrait painters of the 20th century, without question. You know, known globally and acclaimed globally. He was Sigmund Freud's grandson. He was born in Berlin. I think um, his father brought the family as well as Sigmund over when Lucien was four. Um, and, of course, they were German Jews and uh, escaped only just from uh, the Holocaust. So they ended up in London, and Lucien grew up in Britain. He was an absolute rogue. He was a pretty nasty piece of work. But he was a genius. Um, and I've read uh, a few things about him, and um, one book in particular is full of uh, someone, stories of someone who really got to know him well. And uh, one of uh, Freud's early friends was a, a guy called John Minton, who was a fellow student, uh, a fellow painter, rather, um, maybe sort of four or five years older than him, I think. Um, here's a photograph of John Minton. And um, I don't know, if you, if you sort of, you can see that there, um, have a look at it. You can sort of draw perhaps some conclusions from looking at that photograph. I mean, it's the kind of photo you might put on an album cover. I've got photos of me like that for, for when my album comes out. Um, yeah, it's, it's getting a bit dated now. But anyway, what can you do? Um, you know, and it's sort of a bit mean and moody, sort of atmospheric, you know, sort of nice, sort of monochrome um, And, you know, perhaps you look at him, so it seems maybe a little spaced. <laughs> he probably was a bit spaced. Um, <clears throat> this, uh, also, maybe a little melancholy, a um, little unworldly, perhaps distracted, sad even. Um, now, I'm putting ideas in your head just because of the, the situation. I've shown this photograph and just got people to tell me what they think it is going on there, what sorts of things you can learn about Minton. Those are some of the things that people say. Now, um, I think in 1952, Freud uh, and Minton painted each other's portraits. This is Freud's portrait of Minton. It's clearly the same bloke. But clearly, there are differences. 
I don't know what you would say now, having looking, looked at the portrait. Um, I think the pain is more visceral, more on the surface. And again, I've done discussions with this, and so these are some of the things people have said, and certainly how I see it. I mean, you look at him there, and there seems, dare I say it, a despair, a sense of doom, perhaps, certainly feeling overwhelmed. Now, obviously, you look at that, and you have no idea what might be causing that or whatever, um, and, you know, you can speculate all you like. It, it, it's a painting. It's not words. But it is communicating something that you can't necessarily just pin down with words. And I find that a deeply affecting portrait. Especially because I know that on Christmas Day, five years later, Minton took his own life. And Freud was asked about this, and he certainly hadn't appreciated how bad things had got. And he, I think he, was, he said that none of their friends knew how desperate John was. And he would never have actually occurred to him that he was full of despair at the time when they painted these portraits. You know, they would have had laughs, they would have chatted, they were... You know, they would booze in the pubs together and so on and so forth. But looking back after the suicide, it's not a stretch to think that he saw something of that suicidal despair five years before, don't you think? But Freud, and, you know, he said at the time it would never have occurred to him that this might happen. And yet you look at that painting now, knowing what you know, you think you can't but see that. Here is a man on the edge, and it's just heartbreaking. It's fascinating. He's seeing something. He's seeing things in this dear friend of his that he wouldn't put into words, couldn't put into words, but he can put into paint on a canvas. And it's an astonishing memorial, in a way, to human brokenness. He conveyed it without words, without even realizing it. Uh, a happier example now. This is now someone living, a friend of mine, called Anna Freeman Bentley. And she makes a living as a painter in East London. And she's done some fascinating projects. Uh, she often, like a lot of people, uses repeated motifs and ideas in her work. And one of her favorite themes is that of staircases. And she had one commission for Chichester Cathedral, and she painted a vast spiral staircase on several uh, connected canvases. And the, t the whole thing came to 11 meters. That's 36 feet. Do you know what she called it? Descent. That's her painting it. And that's it in situ. She called it Descent. Now, a friend was talking to her around the time, uh, an artist friend, uh, about this painting. And um, he asked her, shouldn't you call it Ascent? I mean, shouldn't it be going up? And she said, no. Do you know the story of Jacob's Ladder? 
God comes down to us. That is the gospel. But I have to say, when I first saw it, I assumed, oh, right, that's where you start and you work your way up. I mean, if you saw stairs, that's what you naturally think. And the name, just the title of it, completely transformed my understanding of it. And it made me think again about the gospel. No, this is the amazing thing about the gospel. God comes down to our level. I actually love it. I mean, technically, it's, it's very brilliant. You might think it looks a bit rough and ready, but actually, technically, it's superb. And it's incredibly powerful. Now, in many ways, uh, the art form I'd be most comfortable talking about is music, since playing and listening, as I mentioned, have been part of my life since I can remember. And there are many ways in which music does extraordinary things that go far beyond any other art form. Um, but you've got to take my word for it, because basically you need really unpressured time, because music is all about time. Music is about filling time um, with things that transport you. Um, so I could play you the old clip and stuff, but it just... We'll, we'll have to do a day's seminar on that or something. But anyway, that's, that's another thing. But... There's a lot we can say much more about music than you might think as Christians. And it's not just because sometimes music sets some pretty cool words. Sometimes actually some of the most powerful and potent, stirring, life-changing music for me is music without words. That's a whole thing. But anyway, we'll have to leave that for another day. Let me leave you finally with a modern sculpture or a series it's actually topical and timely. Um, um, I don't know if any here, but uh, my family and many others I know have taken in Ukrainians in the last few months, and it's been a difficult thing for many, a much more sacrificial and involved thing than people anticipated, no doubt, uh, and certainly very difficult for the Ukrainians. Um, last year I read a fascinating book called The Ungrateful Refugee. It was a very important thing to read for me, actually. Made me realize how I would feel if, against my will, I had to run and go to another country. Well, um, here is a, a French artist called Bruno Catalano. I know very little about him except that uh, he was born in Morocco, but he's been in France all his life, pretty much. Uh, he was in the Merchant Navy, and he now lives in Marseille. And this is part of a bigger work or project, project that he's created called Les Voyageurs, The Travelers. And in a number of places, the, the, the sculptures have been placed on docksides, in Marseille, and also in Venice, in Paris, and other places. Now, if I told you that every refugee or exile leaves a part of themselves behind, something that they can never recover, you'd perhaps grasp something of what that was like. But if I then show you this sculpture, it conveys something of the pain and heartache and dismemberment in far more visceral terms, doesn't it? I could kind of describe that, but I don't think 
it would convey anything like what's going on here with the power that just seeing the sculpture can do by itself. I mean, it'd be quite interesting, wouldn't it, if I'd shown you that and said nothing about it and said, what's going on here? What if I then suggest that Jesus himself was an exile? Not simply as a baby in Egypt, but as a human on earth. Think what he did for us in the gospel. Consider what he gave up for the gospel. He, being rich, became poor. He did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, made the most of so he could boss people around. No, he made himself nothing. Became a slave. Even to death. What a great cost. What a wonder. Is it a stretch to say that Jesus, in common with refugees, left a bit of himself behind when he came to us? We cannot even begin to plumb the depths of what it cost him to love us. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. No one can see God, but we have seen him. It's overwhelming. You can't do it justice. You can barely put it into words. But at least you can tell the story. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have no words. It's beyond us. It's beyond our understanding, beyond our capacity to know. But you scorned the riches and treasures of heaven. scorned the shame and humiliation of the cross for the glory set before you, the glory that could be ours. We praise and thank you and long that we might constantly live in the light and as part of belonging to the greatest story ever told. In your name we pray, amen.